I remember somebody telling me, you know, quite, um, quite seriously that, well, there's, there's really no scientific basis for evolution. And most scientists don't actually believe it. It's like, well, most of them do. And there is a pretty good scientific basis. And we can again, make a case that it's not total, that it doesn't explain everything, that there are variances between the different kinds, but like, you don't get to just completely dismiss it in favor of a book that wasn't written as a scientific manual. And so there wasn't, I wasn't finding anybody that had a reasonable, that had a, an, an answer, a specific answer for what I was looking for. And I'm not really sure I knew exactly what it was that I was looking for either, which may have been part of the problem. Uh, and, and it wasn't until people like Jordan Peterson started becoming, you know, more mainstream that I found some of his lectures and went, okay, here's somebody who is clearly an expert in one thing and not the other, but really is seeing how these things tie together. Okay, welcome everyone to the Orthodox Christian Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Constantine Kotantoulos. And for everyone watching or listening, Constantine, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and tell everyone what you spend your time doing. Uh, all right, I'm uh, Constantine. Um, I guess for, for most of this audience, you guys know me as uh, as the owner of Theosis Woodwork. I make uh, primarily Orthodox crosses, but also uh, Western style crosses. Um, that's that's basically been my uh, like part time evening job for about a year now. Um, during the day, I run a home renovation company, so that's where kind of my background in wood comes from. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, uh, born in the Orthodox Church uh, and raised in the Orthodox Church, and my uh, my entire life has been has been kind of centered around uh, around the church. So yeah, that's that's uh, me in a nutshell, I guess. Okay, and we'll probably get into it a little bit later, but uh, maybe as a, a overview for the time being, how did you start the company um, Theosis Woodwork? Um, it, mostly accidentally. Uh, as with most things in my life, I just kind of go where the wind takes me. Um, my uh, daughter was born last November and I wanted a cross to put over her door. And I was, I'd been like, I've, I've, my whole life I've made crosses out of various things. Like I pulled uh, antique cast iron uh, nails out of the framing in my house and, you know, forged those into crosses because I had time on my hands. Um, and for whatever reason, I was just looking online for, crosses to buy and I couldn't find any that I found were either um, of a reasonable quality or were of, of proportions that I actually liked. Uh, the the latter being the real tricky one. There's plenty that were quite well made, but just I, I didn't, for whatever reason, didn't like the proportions. So I decided to make my own um, and uh, then, you know, made a, another one for, uh, for a gift for a family member and then made a couple more that way and decided that like, well, you know, these are crosses that I would like to buy. Maybe it's possible other people would like to buy those as well. So, yeah, so I, I just started uh, advertising on social media, seeing if there was any interest and got a, a reasonable amount of interest uh, right off the bat. And so started up an Etsy shop and then it's been pretty much even a year. And I think about, I think I've sold about 420 crosses worldwide now. Um, okay. So, yeah, yeah, just just basically just basically that I kind of just went with it and uh, yeah. And here I am. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of how much time it's taking 
in your life currently, has it uh, grown quite a bit from when you first started to how much time you're dedicating to making yeah. these crosses now? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I was selling one or two a week after about a month. Um, many of them, uh, usually I would just kind of make a batch of crosses out of some fancy hardwoods that I pick up at uh, my local supplier. They were always pretty flashy, um, very, very unique woods from all over the world, a lot of bright colors. Uh, and, and so they would stand out. And so I'd, I'd make a batch of them and, you know, usually I would sell them all and then I would just, you know, make another batch. Uh, then I kind of started working with some of the more familiar hardwoods that people, that people know well, not know and things like that. And for whatever reason, I think there's, um, a certain humility that lends itself to the crosses made out of those woods. Um, and those started selling a little bit more. So I basically set it up so that, you know, I try to make a bunch in advance, but for the most part, if you ordered from the listing and I was out of stock, I just, I'd make them made to order. Uh, and then that started picking up. And so now I'm at the, the past three weeks, I'm averaging, I think my average is two and a half a day. Um, so I'm, I'm spending, I'm spending a good amount of time every evening um doing this now when i when i get in okay okay well it'll be interesting to see where it goes in the future and see if there's a uh, transition that occurs at some yeah, point yeah yeah I, I it'll keep idea. growing i figured there'd be a market cap <laughs> to be perfectly honest right. <laughs> i figured you'd, there'd eventually be a point where things would plateau and it's not happening and i'm, I'm incredibly blessed and incredibly thankful but at the same time it's like oh, boy <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the world is a big place so you yeah know it'll happen yeah yeah. So uh, what was it like being raised Orthodox? Like walk us through some of the history there and uh, your story growing up in the Orthodox church. Yeah. Um, so I was raised in, I, I was baptized in a, a Greek Orthodox church, actually, that my father um, had been raised in. My mother, um, I guess, converted, was baptized and converted when she married my dad. She had some serious issues with the Orthodox church at the time, um, but I think was... They, they had been through enough in their time together. She was willing to, uh, for his sake, um, become Orthodox. I know she, I, I think even when I was baptized, she still really had an issue with icons coming from a, a Protestant background. Um, and uh, so anyways, yeah, I was, I was baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church. And as part of the, um, the, the, the Orthodox community uh, in Ottawa, my parents ended up meeting uh, some people from Mission Church that was nearby. And uh, my, my mother's, you know, very, very Canadian, um, you know, hardly spoke French, uh, really just spoke English. And so being at a Greek church was hard for her. So there was this, you know, mission parish of 15 people or something. Uh, and so she started, started going to that parish. And that's basically where I've been the rest of my life. That church has grown uh, since then to several hundred people now, I think. I say several hundred, over 100, 150 maybe. Um, and, you know, Pasco, of course. 200 um but i don't think that counts <laughs> uh and yeah so I, i've been i've been in that parish the entire time so it's been uh unique from the from what i've known of a lot of orthodox people in ottawa because most of them are from ethnic parishes uh, and they're very much uh, centered on the ethnic community there's the greek churches here is you know all greeks um I don't think there's a single non-Greek that's a regular. Uh, the Antiochian church is, you know, it's in, it's in pretty much entirely, there's, there's a little bit more mixes in the culture there. Um, the OCA is the only one that's, uh, you know, got a little bit more, but we're part of now the, uh, the Carpathian Russian 
diocese. And so there's a lot of Ukrainians, a lot of Bulgarians, um, a lot of, because uh, the parish was formed kind of in the 90s. So a lot of people that were fleeing communist and former communist countries came to this church. So, you know, I grew up in a, a parish that was, and I, I just thought this was the way the Orthodox Church was, um, or individual parishes in the Orthodox Church were, uh, a parish that was really, really multicultural. And right, so, right. which which has been kind of interesting. And so I grew up in a, uh, with our priest who, who speaks many languages quite fluently, um, would always switch languages um, while he was serving, uh, primarily English and Ukrainian, but there's French in there, there's Russian in there, he puts Greek in there, and there's always a little bit for everybody. It takes us like 10 minutes to get through the Lord's Prayer because we cover every single language. Um, and then for good measure, we we sing it at the end as well. So that's uh, something my wife um, gets, a, gets a kick out of because, you know, the other Orthodox churches are like, you know, an hour 20, hour 45, we're, we're pulling like 220. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> you know, if, if we can do it three times in three languages, we're going to do it. Um, but, but I know that's been it's been an asset for a lot of the uh, a lot of the people in the community who feel who really feel at home. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's where I've been. My sisters were both baptized uh, in, in this church. Um, and, uh, you know, my my entire social group and friend base basically comes out of uh, comes out of this church as well. OK. And, yeah. And so, like, as a kid going to the Orthodox Church and being raised in an orthodox home uh what did that look like or what was that experience like was it something that you enjoyed or do you have certain memories from that time or would you guys have certain practices and habits in uh your home life that like oriented you guys towards the faith um a bunch of questions there yeah <laughs> um so what what it was like i remember i remember getting in some good trouble from my mother when I was, I was seven. Cause I, I told her that I wish I lived with my aunt cause she didn't have to go to church on Sundays and she could stay home and watch TV. Um, we, but we, it was a lot more than just, uh, than just Sundays. Um, we, I, I don't remember a time when we, when, uh, like even as kids, we weren't fasting, we weren't uh, participating in Lent, uh, pretty, pretty wholeheartedly. And that was always funny going to just, you know, a standard elementary school um, where it's the, the concept of Lent was a little bit more mainstream, I'd say, you know, 20, 20 years ago, I guess. Um, but it was still kind of, you know, the couple of kids, you know, gave up eating chocolate when they were at home. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm showing up with back when we could have things like sesame butter in school, like all my weird lunches that were entirely meat free, but trying to be protein. And then by the end of, by the end of uh, elementary school and every single form of, you know, seed or nut based food was, was banned. I was eating like, you know, cheese and bread it was <laughs> something I could bring to school. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it was kind of neat. It, it was, it was very, yeah, it, it was it was at the forefront of our home for sure, and it was kind of interesting seeing that in uh, in contrast to pretty much everybody else in my life. Uh, and I think as a result, I didn't um, connect particularly well with with most of my peers in school, um, and there there was just a large disconnect. But uh, on that on that degree, and 
yeah so i i spent most of my time with uh with with my my church friends and my peers in church um i'm, I'm starting to ramble now you want to go over the questions again so i can get a little more focused yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so uh i i was just wondering if there were any um, maybe specific memories or practices that you guys had uh, in the home like whether like say in the evening you guys would gather around like an icon corner and and pray like whether there was some sort of rhythm at home you were mentioning fasting and then also um within the parish what that was like as a kid because i know that uh, some kids can really love growing up in the orthodox church or any church for that matter and then other kids it's like a, a struggle initially and you know they are not wanting to stand still and they're running yeah. around or like it can be a bit of a, a trying time and then maybe later in their life they appreciate it so i'd just be yeah. interested to hear your reflections looking back yeah so yeah uh you bring up uh the, the nightly prayers my uh my parents had a fairly large uh icon hutch just covering all all sorts of icons and we had our uh nightly and morning prayer routine for uh for a good long while we had our nightly like once we all kind of got older and were starting our day at different times the morning prayer routine fell by the wayside or at least the the communal prayer routine fell by the wayside um our evening prayer routine was pretty constant uh but pretty much till i moved out um yeah yeah we had a lot of that um for a long while the you know sunday after church was the the family day um the 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 you know miniature version of the sabbath kind of thing we we had kept that as a family for a long time as well and again it wasn't until you know the world got a little bit busy and i had to get my first job where things like that just became slightly less uh slightly less of a of a routine um as far as the church itself actually so i served in the altar uh I think I was maybe seven or eight when I started serving the altar and I served in the altar until I was 19. So I was, I was in there for a good long while. Um, which is something I definitely took for granted at the time. And looking back, there's, uh, you know, that was, that was a, a pretty incredible experience start to finish. Um, and that, so that was, that, that gave me a little bit more of a reason to stick to the the discipline of standing still and and trying to behave myself in church uh you know i'd still get kind of distracted in the altar the uh, the deacon gave me and the other altar server hell one time because we were making figurines out of candle wax when they weren't paying attention um which i, I was told we were supposed to be subject to the liturgical slap and never got it and i'm thankful for that but uh um, yeah, so that was, I, I didn't, I, because I guess I was able to participate in the liturgy in that capacity, I didn't find it as hard as I know a lot of, a lot of people did. And I was able to connect with the liturgy on a level that a lot of, a lot of people, uh, my age in, in other church, in, in our church and other churches, um, weren't necessarily able to. And, uh, and, and yeah, so, cause we, yeah, anyways, sort of trying to think and talk at the same time doesn't really work well um we uh we'd have our throughout lent we'd have the sanctified liturgies friday night we'd have vesper saturday and divine liturgy sunday morning and so you know i'd have school all week and then it was church all weekend and back to and back to school and then holy week was its own uh adventure basically because that would be several hours every single night um sunday to sunday 
and uh and that was something that me and and the other uh, altar server really while while we were going through it was it was challenging because it was like physically painful to be a you know 10 year old holding a candle stock still for two hours that was uh that, that was challenging but it was something that we really look forward to all year and um we we'd celebrate Pascha and there's there's this incredible joy in it and there was always that little bit of you know ah oh, we're a, we're a year away basically to the next one so yeah being able to participate in that capacity really um yeah we really brought it home in a way that I think it doesn't for a lot of people so right right and yeah. did you have any friends that were uh, Orthodox, but going to different parishes? Like, were you involved in, say, like the Greek Orthodox community at all? Uh, I wasn't particularly involved in the Greek Orthodox community, um, mostly because the Greek community in Ottawa was incredibly ethnocentric. And in spite of my my very Greek name, I don't speak the language. And so they, they were a bit of a closed community in that capacity. Um, I, I went to the Greek language school, but if you didn't, uh, like on Saturday mornings, but if you didn't go there speaking Greek, you didn't get anything out of it because they didn't teach you to speak Greek. They taught you Greek history in Greek uh, and Greek mythology in Greek and Greek geography in Greek. Um, so I, I, I never, I was never able to be part of that community uh, when I was in university and um, was part of the OCF. I made a few more friends that way. Uh, but for the most part, uh, for the for the most part, it was just my small community that I grew up with. Um, we had a the, there was the the priest's kids and uh, myself, my family, and the altar server and his family, and you know, the people of our age were called the core four because we were the original kids in the church, and we were kind of the 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 one there were there were transients that would come and go in our in our social group, but we were always the the consistent ones there, and and we're still basically all you know hanging out to this day. Okay. Okay. And so along the way, I mean, you mentioned going to university, um, but it could be at a, a different point as well, or various points. Did you have to overcome any challenges uh, within the Orthodox Church? Like I imagine, just to sort of prime the pump here, if you're going to university, you're going to be interacting with peers that don't necessarily have the same worldview, aren't orienting themselves in the same direction. And I know that that can be uh, a difficult time for a lot of people, a, a good time, but a difficult time. So yeah. um, was there anything like that or otherwise that you had to overcome? Um, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I had to overcome any of that courtesy of university or the people that I, I met in university. I'm uh, actually not the most social person. So making friends in university was not something I was, particularly good at uh and i was taking uh a pretty heavy science load so i i was i had 40 some hours of classes a week and then a whole lot of homework and so i, I just I, I didn't end up being overly social that way um it was my own questioning mind that really got in the way for the most part um and i have very you know yeah questioning empirical mind which is why i was drawn to the sciences and maths to begin with and it was a little bit challenging to reconcile some of the, not the teachings of the church, but the, say some of the, the people who handled youth group who were maybe not prepared to answer some kinds of questions, um, had an overly simplistic view of, you know, uh, of science and scientific methods. And so would dismiss it in a way that I was like, well, that's not right. <laughs> 
Um, and so, so that, you know, caused me to be skeptical. I wouldn't say skeptical for a while, but it, uh, I, you know, left some thoughts in the back of my head that I couldn't necessarily reconcile. Um, and yeah, that, that was, again, I wouldn't say courtesy necessarily of university, but you know, uh, the thing that drew me to university was also that, which was causing some problems there. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there, there were definitely challenges on my part that I had, that I had to overcome and that I'm, you know, probably still working through in some capacity. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there's the, the reason I named my shop Theosis was because, you know, the, the, you know, there are people like my mother who is just an incredibly faithful person and that like, and as she professes, just always had the perfect childlike faith. And I've never had that. But, you know, when I'm making a cross, I, I get it. <laughs> and that's kind of, yeah. And with the, like exposure to sciences and math. I think that that's often a thing that people take as uh, subjects that are like juxtaposed in terms of like religion and science. And people will say, well, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. And yeah. they create a false dichotomy between those things. So I'd just be curious to drill down into that for a second and hear yeah. um, what were some of the specifics in terms of what you were wrestling through and how did you come to a place where you were able to reconcile that and perhaps even integrate like a scientific understanding with a, a theological understanding of the yep. world? Um, all right. So a lot to unpack there. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, it wasn't. There, there, there were a handful of things that kind of led me you know, a, a little bit more in, in kind of a, to, to, to see a union between, between the two worldviews. And one of them was just, I, I had only taken, like, even in high school, everything I took was geared to get me to university. So it was all um, science and math type courses. And, you know, the mandatory English course I had to take. Uh, I did two years of university and never took uh, an arts course. It was just science, math, statistics, and one, like, social geography course which was which was geoanalysis it was still just computers and math um and it wasn't until a little bit later on that i took an elective art course and i realized that the art people didn't know the science people existed at all and like we're on the same campus and they're these professors would be speaking as if the, the work that the, the work that this person was doing teaching arthurian literature was the most important work that was being done in the university and the science stuff wasn't important, didn't generate anything important in the world. And, but the science professors all spoke the same way. And at a certain point, I was thinking, like, do you guys not talk? Like, do you guys not realize that you're, you're probably both, you, you probably both have some kind of value if you just communicated a little bit. And so it, it was that um, revelation life in a revelation but just th that thought that made me realize that okay we're, we're in this era where you know we're, we're spoiled by knowledge um we we know everything the fact that there was a time when there were these you know temples in the middle of the jungle that like got discovered in the 40s because people didn't know they were there like we have satellites we know where everything is all the time and and so we're we we have this you know total knowledge of the world at least we think we have this total knowledge of the world 
And as a result, we think that the, you know, methods that gave us this total knowledge of the world are total in themselves. And it was kind of realizing that that's not true, but also realizing that, like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't taught that that was the case. It's, it's kind of just in the culture. And we, you know, or a lot of people at least just kind of absorb that as fact. And so then it was from that point kind of breaking down, okay, science isn't total, but it is also true. And so where now, where is this, where do we find this balance? There are things that it, that it doesn't know things that it can't know things that it can't explain, um, or that it isn't, isn't designed to explain. And I, I kind of got stuck there for a while because a lot of people that I would speak to people in the church that I would speak to took, you know, this is, we're, we're still talking this is about 10 years ago. So this is kind of before, a lot of the stuff we're seeing online now. Um, a, a lot of them took this view of, I remember somebody telling me, you know, quite um, quite seriously that, well, there, there's really no scientific basis for evolution. And most scientists don't actually believe it. And it's like, well, most of them do. And there is a pretty good scientific basis. And we can, again, make a case that it's not total, that it doesn't explain everything, that there are variances between the different kinds. But, like, you don't get to just completely dismiss it in favor of a book that wasn't written as a scientific manual. And so there, there wasn't, I, I wasn't finding anybody that had a reasonable, that had a, an, an answer, a specific answer for what I was looking for. And I'm not really sure I knew exactly what it was that I was looking for either, which may have been part of the problem. Uh, and, and it wasn't until people like Jordan Peterson started becoming, you know, more mainstream that I, found some of his lectures and went, okay, here's somebody who is clearly an expert in one thing and not the other, but really is seeing how these things tie together. And that started to, to bring all this home a little bit more for me. And then, um, yeah. And, and then there's been a lot of, you know, engaging with some of these communities online. Um, in spite of as, as much as I hate the internet and all these, <laughs> all the internet communities anyways, but, uh, but yeah, engaging with a lot of that and learning a lot of, um, learning some of these things and, and, and seeing that. Yeah. I just, just see, seeing how much, you know, truth there is in the Bible and, and what the Bible is saying and, you know, and just, and learning more about science and scientists and all these people and seeing exactly what they're saying that I can act, that, that I'm able to reconcile this in my mind a little bit more and actually not necessarily have to struggle with, with it as if it's in, you know, as if there's some real tension there, because the, the, you know, older I've gotten, the more I've read, the more I'm realizing that there's, they're, they're, you know, they're not, they're saying the same thing while really not talking about the same thing. And, you know, they're, they're both, they're both, they're both speaking the truth in the language of, in, yeah, in their language. And, uh, and, and, you know, and uh, I can't remember who said this, but it was science. Science tells us how, and the Bible tells us why. And you know, that's like, yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah, they're they're giving us two different perspectives, and yeah. Again, I, I'm not necessarily the person to speak on these things, but um, you know, this is kind of what I've been working out over over the years. Totally. Well, and I think a lot of people find themselves in that boat where they're brought up in the church. And then they go to university and they encounter 
uh, scientific worldview and it's around us as well. And there's lots of good fruit from that in terms of what we've been able to develop technologically and know about the natural history of the world, but it's not a total worldview, as you mentioned. And so I think it's helpful for people to just hear about someone else's journey through that, because that, to take evolution as an example, um, not that the Orthodox Church really goes one way or the other. It's like, you can accept that as the history of the world, or you can not in orthodoxy it's not like it's a tenant of the faith so i just want to give yeah. that as a disclaimer i'm more in <laughs> yeah. favor of it as a like helpful way to explain the history of how we got here but it's not necessarily in competition with god because god can well i mean philosophically god is the one who exists and holds all things in existence and so it's not as if science can just do away with where the world emerged from or what keeps it going and so i think that those are ultimately compatible and that if you're taking evolution as a story of how hum humanity got here that you can see god working through that whole process and actually there's even an argument that um the multiple species that existed over the span of time would better represent the glory of god than if it was just individual species without any evolution because each of these different species would reflect god in a particular way so like i i'm i'm personally a fan of when those things can be integrated like that um mm -hmm. and and just sometimes what i find might be the case and i'd be curious to hear what you think about this is um people grow up with the faith and then at a, at a certain point maybe they stop growing in they're wrestling with the faith and so what they have on board in their sort of like mental cpu is maybe uh sunday school understanding which yeah. was appropriate for that time <laughs> but it's not going to last you the whole way through and so yeah. then as they go along uh they encounter sciences and like a, a scientific worldview maybe particularly in university and that's like a pretty strong bit of data and then what happens, I think, is that those pieces of data come into conflict in their mind and they're using this mature data of the sciences to critique and criticize and sometimes break down what was an appropriate faith at the time, but has not grown up and has not matured. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd be curious if you think that that's like a helpful way to understand it or if you think that sort of matches what your experience was. Um, and if you have, like having gone through some of this journey, if you'd have any advice for people that are in university and are wrestling with some of these things currently. Um, I, I definitely think that's a, a, probably what happens in the case of most people. Um, it's, uh, I mean, you look at all the great atheists of our time, they all have uh, no more than a Sunday school level education of, of the faith and have a moderate historical, usually pretty skewed historical uh, education of, of the church. Uh, and it's, it's almost always of like things that the Roman church did that everybody's like, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. Um, and so I think that is, yeah, that is a, a, a large contributing factor. Um, 
as far as advice for for people that as uh, as odd as this might be if if people are actually having having an issue uh reconciling these two things like actually read c.s lewis because i found the, as far as just the the way he writes it very approachable the the tone and, it, and it's really there's nothing that's going to be deep theology and trying to you know it, it's not even his apologetics aren't even necessarily proofs as much as they're just simply like you know when i and i've read most of his work several times because i just i i you know well i've got it on audible i'll just listen while i'm working and i find um he he, he's got a he does a very good job at picking apart the things that are definitely in your mind and and just simply breaking them down saying well you think these things here are these things um and yeah if, if you're struggling it's it's a way that you can i i found yeah like mere christianity is a very approachable book without being in any way theological. And I think he says, uh, I think he says in the intro that he ran the book by uh, an Anglican, a Catholic and uh, some other Protestant, and they all criticized it for not being like their faith enough. And so he's like, I probably did a good job with it. Um, but yeah, I found, yeah, his, his work is very, is, is very approachable in that way. And yeah an e easy place to start there's i mean plenty of church fathers you can read and all sorts of other things but i think if if you're at a point where you're kind of you know having a hard time reconciling these things he's a very good place to start yeah absolutely absolutely and also i think one thing i want to just pick up on that you mentioned earlier is that scripture isn't a science textbook and so it's helpful to approach scripture on its own terms and to see some of the symbolism and the beauty that's yeah. contained there because what you have in genesis 1 when the world just to return to this like idea of like evolution does it contradict scripture um what you have in genesis 1 is this really beautiful poem about god creating the world in an orderly way and placing humanity as really like the idol of the world in the sense that it's the image of god and so the whole world is now a temple and this is amazing in contrast to a lot of the other stories that were told about human beings where they would be like an afterthought for the gods or uh, some sort of slaves and in scripture you actually see humans having a very noble place in the universe you see uh, god separating the waters and creating order and that that's how we often find meaning in our lives by taking something that's disorganized and creating order out of it and also god's command to be fruitful and multiply which obviously is like well yeah, how else are you going to find meaning in your life? You get generally yes. get married and you have kids or you don't get married and you're fruitful and multiplying in terms of like making disciples of the church. So it seems like the meaning of life, like you mentioned, is um, communicated really effectively through the tradition of Christianity and, and scripture is a part of that tradition. But if we go to it asking the wrong questions and trying to interrogate it from this overly literal perspective we're just going to do ourselves a disfavor yeah yeah certainly and uh yeah and even i mean a rudimentary reading of genesis is like clearly not scientific and so that's it, it is an interesting it does seem that some I, I wouldn't say necessarily into the orthodox church but a lot of the 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 protestant culture that north america has has bled into the communities of the church. Like I, I don't ever see this kind of teaching in the Orthodox church, but I see a lot of people 
that have some of these more, I hate the word literal because it means like on paper, but, but uh, or as written, but that, that have a very, yeah, scientific view of, of, of the book of Genesis. And that's, and, and, and they'll, instead of trying to, yeah, teach it the way you're talking about in this, you know, symbolic, not even symbolic, but what was the word you used? <laughs> he had a good word there and I've forgotten it now. Oh um, yeah. No, I'm not sure either. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, teaching it as, as, as what the Bible is, it's taught and they try to read science into it and explain how these things work. And um, I remember one Protestant trying to explain that, you know, with the, the separation of the waters in the heaven and the waters below, um, you know, there used to be a big ocean in the sky and a, you know, big ocean below. And then the great flood was actually just the sky coming down permanently. And I was like, Oh, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> but you know, there you go. You read, you read science into the Bible and, and you're coming up with your own theories. And that wasn't somebody in the Orthodox church. That was a, that was a, a Protestant who was very happy with what they had learned. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't yeah. very old when he told me that, but I was like, I'm not sure I believe you, man. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from like, uh, it's interesting, like from the symbolic point of view, uh, with the flood, it is kind of like a miniature creation that happens. And yeah, so there certainly. is that notion, but it's obviously like, but it, it's, it's, it's not a literal reading of what happened in that yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah and that was very much, this was not, this was not symbolism. This was like Sunday school. This is, this is actually how it happened because the Bible can't be wrong since the Bible was written. You know, there were some people watching it through binoculars and wrote it down. So you know, yeah, that was, it was seen, it's seen a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of stuff like that, that will kind of permeate its way just into the community. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think that it does a bit of a disservice, but I'm also not sure it's entirely avoidable. So the, the trick is more just, you know, educating yourself a little bit past, uh, past that kind of worldview. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think, that, um, I mean, one, Thing that's been said in the past uh, by Charles Taylor, who's like a, a philosopher in um, Quebec, I think, in McGill, but a Canadian philosopher, anyways. And he wrote A Secular Age, and it's asking the question why do people um, not believe in God, or why is God like an option today, whereas in the year 1500, everyone believed in God? And he's sort of tracking that trajectory and what changed along the way. And one of the things that he points out, and I think argues pretty persuasively, is that as the world became less porous to God, as we uh, didn't experience God around us, that a lot more weight was placed on scripture to be the sole place where we experience God. And we put undue pressure on it. And that's where these very literal readings come through because if God has been evacuated from the rest of our lives and it's only in scripture now, then we have to defend that tooth and nail. But if instead we have more of like a sacramental worldview or the sense that like God is all around us, that God is the one that necessarily exists. And so anything that exists participates in God. Anything that's good and true and beautiful is an approximation of God. And so we're always interacting with God in different ways. And we just need to have eyes that are open to that. Then it's not as significant that every single thing in scripture is literal. And I think, I think that's why in orthodoxy, um, at least in like, more of the official teachings of the church and the standard practice, it isn't as strict about every single thing in scripture being literal in like a historical photographic sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I wonder too. You mentioned the, you know, uh, scripture kind of being, I guess, all, all that's or not all that's left, but where, where the focus uh, seems to go come from. What when when he's writing about this, uh, where, where is he focused on geographically? If we're talking Europe, he's looking at, at the history of, of Christianity because you know, does this follow yeah. the decline in in kind of a, a ritualized church calendar as well? As I notice, even even the Catholic Church, and I've, I've known some fairly um, like uh, traditional Catholics, they don't they don't seem to have the same kind of liturgical calendar that we do. At least not to the same. Uh, they they have the feasts and everything, but you know we have a lot of a lot of fasting, um, but also a lot of feasting and a lot of rituals in the church. Um, and you know we have in in Lent we have our Soul Saturdays, and we have all these. There, there's a lot actively going on. And, and there's a place for everybody in that capacity. And I wonder how much of that is, is I don't know when these things were, you know, were being kind of chipped away at it in, in the Roman church. Um, but I'm curious if, I'm curious, yeah, how much of that contributed. Yeah. I, yeah. I see where it all is now and it's, there's not much left. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I probably won't do a perfect <laughs> job. Well, I definitely won't do a perfect job of, uh, summarizing this but i know that he does talk about time and how the notion of time has changed throughout time and right. that uh there was more of this like embodied sense of like feasts and fasts and you're going through the liturgical calendar and that um that it became more of like homogenous time that like all time is the same and that could have had uh, a positive motivation behind it in the sense of wanting to uh make everything how would you say this sort of like ennoble here, here's I'm going to hopefully not be too um, abstract and uh, lose everyone right now, but basically with the reformers, there is an argument to be made and the, re the reforms happened in the Catholic church as well. And there was like good motivations behind them, but some of the fruit was not great. And so I think the intention was to ennoble everyday life. And so um, someone like Martin Luther would talk about like the milkmaid and the person, just an ordinary, regular person. And I think that there was generally probably a distaste for like any sort of hierarchy and any sort of differentiation of like, these are holy days, these are less holy days. And I think the intention was to make everything holy, to make everything um, special. But probably when you do that, nothing is holy and nothing is special because there's no way to differentiate. And then you just get this like time that's just homogenous. It's just everywhere. It's all the same. Um, so hopefully that's not too much of a, um, a butchery job that I've just done there, but he definitely does talk about how time has, has changed throughout right. in that book. So I, I was curious, um, we talked about some challenges, but what are the reasons that you've uh, decided to remain an Orthodox Christian. And I should kind of throw in there, as you were growing up, were you tempted either uh, to other forms of Christianity or to another just way of life altogether? Um, certainly was not tempted to any other forms of Christianity. Uh, gr growing up Orthodox in the community, I was <laughs> probably pretty prejudiced against the other ones. Um, and, and not even with necessarily knowing a whole lot about them is just, you know, well, it's, you know, it's the other churches and this is our church. Um, there were definitely times in my life where it, it's, it's hard to say if I seriously considered, you know, uh, 
say living a secular life like I can't ever imagine not being orthodox but my desire to be you know actively practicing was was certainly waning uh it's you know it's it's a heavy commitment you know when your life is incredibly busy and uh and, and you're not and you don't necessarily see the value in uh in in you know making making the time for you know even just church on sundays um and so that you know that that uh that that's happened a couple times um not you know not recently for sure which has been nice and i think uh part of that honestly is was just growing up a little bit um you know having some some real responsibility and you know a family and stuff as well kind of changes your priorities um and you know the the long term becomes a lot more concrete um as to why you know why i stayed <laughs> that's that's a hard one and, and I, I don't mean because i don't know the answer necessarily but it's um i mean it, you know which one there's uh the best i guess i guess at, at the basics the the best reason i can give for why i stayed is you know looking at the world around us right now and it's it's spiraled really quick in the last little while but you know the markers have been there for a while and it you know it's 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 just all felt it feels dead um I mean, there's, you know, active celebration of, of death in our culture, but, but, uh, but there's no, there, there's no, there's no real, there's no real life. Um, there's no tradition. I know a lot of people, you know, don't see tradition as something that's alive. I think, uh, I can't remember where I saw this, but somebody said tradition was just peer pressure from dead people. And I was like, well, there's, you know, a little bit. Um, but, but you can, you know, you can make it your own. I think the Orthodox Church has done a pretty good job at, at, you know, keeping tradition, uh, keeping tradition alive. And yes, every, everything we see in, in our, in our current society <clears throat> is just, it, it's an abolishment of all tradition, but we're replacing it with, you know, with, with nothing. And so, so you look at the world at large and there, there isn't anything there. And so then, you know, from there, I kind of go backwards and I'm, you know, I was raised in the church. I know the church and because I was raised in it, there's a lot I, I've, I've taken for granted and, and don't, couldn't necessarily articulate if I wanted to, but I know there's, I, I, you know, I know the feeling when I'm there and I know the feeling, you know, during Pasco when we're all walking back into the church after the first procession, the lights are all on and there's, you know, it, we're, we're, we're reenacting walking into an empty tomb from 2000 years ago. And there's no feeling of life quite like that. And, and if, I guess if I could summarize it all uh, in spite of my, yeah, in spite of my, my, you know, own issues with, you know, having faith in the, 
you know, in the, in the, the kind of traditional sense of just this, this, you know, unwavering belief. Um, it's, it's, it's moments like that in the church that, that really, really bring it home for me and, and kind of remind me, you know, why I'm there. Um, and you know, other, uh, my wife's not going to watch this one, other moments as well. Like, you know, when I got married, um, you know, that's definitely, definitely on the top, just didn't come to mind when I was speaking there. Um, but yeah, again, being married in the church and being, you know, I've been to plenty of, of weddings in the Orthodox church my whole life, but actually being married in the Orthodox church was, was incredible. And the, uh, yeah, again, the, the, the life in that, in that ceremony is, is just something else. And so all of these things is just, yeah, I guess, I guess in the end, if I can, if I can summarize it in one word, it's life. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well said. I know one thing that came to mind when you were talking, you mentioned tradition as like uh, this, this person critiquing it and saying that it's the peer pressure of the dead. And it reminded me of this other quote about tradition. That's from a guy named uh, Yaroslav Pelikan who converted to orthodoxy late in his life. And uh, he was a Lutheran prior to that. But um, he said that tradition is the living voice of the dead and traditionalism is the dead voice of the living. So mm. it sounds like that person was talking about traditionalism and not actual yeah. tradition. Yeah. No, that's 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 actually very good. Yeah. I, I so, wouldn't have thought to differentiate it, but I said it, it, it's funny and I like to, you know, tease my parents when they when they'll say some weird like, well this is our tradition. I'm like we started it 3 years ago. No, it's not. But, you know. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. 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 Well, and and it's also Nice in the sense, like what you just described is like, where else am I going to go? Essentially what you said, like you found something that's good here. That's it's yeah. true that it gives you life um, and that there isn't something that's on offer that you found as compelling or as life-giving. Um, and then actually one thing I wanted to run by you as well. Like, I think some, sometimes there's that notion of faith as um, just like certainty. Like when you have faith, you are, mentally certain about something and you do not waver and you do not go to the right or the left. But I think, let me know what you think about this, that a, a good understanding of faith or like a good definition of it is cooperation with God. And it is less to do with our mental uh, assent to certain things and just our concrete actions of how we're orienting ourselves in life and what kind of actions we're taking. Um, and it brings it out of the mental realm and puts it more in like the concrete and and practical realm. What, right. what do you think about that? It certainly sounds good to me. I mean, I never, I've never, uh, I've never heard that before. I haven't, I've never seen it that way, but that does seem, it, it does seem to, an issue I've had specifically with the word faith is I can't understand it. I can't necessarily even understand what it's supposed to mean because the way, not to pick on Protestants too much, but you know, it's the easy target here when they talk about when they talk about faith they they almost talk about it as if it, having faith is is um like it's not relational it's a process that requires you to be convinced it, it, it's almost like faith requires doubt to you know what i mean or faith faith total faith requires an absence of proof um and it, and I think that might just be simply how we've we've translated words over the years and, and probably removed some that we had that, that were better at describing something. 
Um, but it's, it's just, yeah, I've always found it kind of a tricky, um, uh, a tricky word to, to, you know, even to attribute to my own, yeah, to my own feelings that way. Um, so yeah, an idea of cooperation or, uh, you know, relationship. I had spoken to my priest once about, I had, I had asked him about, uh, I guess, like Aristotelian proofs of God. And I said, like, you know, how, how do these, does Orthodox Christianity have a view on this? Um, like where, you know, is, is it, even if we don't, is there anything necessarily correct or incorrect about this? And, and his answer was actually that it was not that it's correct or incorrect, but that it, we're, we're starting from a, a false premise. He says, like, I'm sitting here talking to you right now. I, said, I don't have a proof of you. I have a relationship with you. And he said, this, it's the same with God. It's not a, it's not a proof. It's a relationship. And he said, you can't come, you can't come to one from the other. Um, and, and yeah, I, so but maybe that kind of ties in a little bit with what, with what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also makes me think like in the old Testament, um, that words are really associated with action. And so like in, in the Hebrew language, when it says like, you'll read the old Testament and it'd be funny. This is another thing that ties in with literalism, right? Cause it'll say that God forgot his people or Israel forgot. And that's not because God has amnesia and it's not because the Israelites thought, Oh, who was that? god that brought us out of egypt it's actually because they stopped acting in a way that was faithful towards god and so it's directly tied to their actions and so that's why i mean that's one of the reasons why i think that like how we act is obviously so important because what we do informs what we believe and what we think and so it seems like faith necessarily is something that's tied to how we're operating in the world in the same sense that like in this conversation like i'm operating in good faith that we're going somewhere you're operating in good faith that we're going somewhere and we don't have like a, a proof of that per se but uh we're willing to cooperate but, but in the process yeah. yeah 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 exactly exactly right. so um my last question i want to make sure that i have time for this but for somebody that's exploring orthodoxy that's interested in it but maybe hasn't uh, been to many parishes or like liturgies or or whatever uh they're new uh, yeah. in any shape or form what would be your advice to someone in that boat i actually get asked this question a lot uh nowadays um I think for whatever reason, people think that since I, I make uh, crosses, I've, I've got some like deep theological understanding of things. And the answer I've had to give a couple times is unfortunately very, very simple. It's just go to church. Like, you know, talk to, talk to a priest, preferably not one online, not, sorry, preferably not one that has a very large online presence because they're generally speaking operating in a you know large community type you know environment they're not they're they're not going to be operating in the the kind of individual level i think that that a lot of people would need in this capacity they're they're going to be answering you know big picture questions when i think smaller ones would be needed but yeah find a local church go to a church talk to a priest and and just experience you know experience the liturgy um best uh, you know i hear a lot of people that they'll they'll tell me well yeah i've been you know following all these people and you know it's been it's been kind of cool you know like six months of talking to these people and talking to this people it's like well 
I don't know anybody who would watch a couple of YouTube videos on swimming and think they can, you know, swim across a river. It's like, you gotta, you, you, you gotta go on location and actually experience this for yourself. Um, you know, to, to really know, to, to really know what it's about. Um, and yeah, the, I find the, uh, the Orthodox, um, like communities within the church are, well, every single one I've ever experienced has been very, very warm and very welcoming. And, you know, everybody's happy to see you. So, you know, take it off the internet for a little bit and, and, and see it in the real world and see, see what the faith's actually about. Yeah, absolutely. And having grown up in the Orthodox church, um, and I'm imagining seeing some more converts come in more recently, what would be more specific advice to someone that's uh, converting either from Protestantism or from another uh, background into Orthodoxy? Because I know that sometimes when people are new, they're like super zealous and super excited, and that's really positive, but sometimes the emphasis can get a little misplaced on different topics. So would you have any um, like caution signs that you'd throw up and, and say, well, slow down in this area or be careful around this or any other general advice for someone in that boat? Um, actually, yeah, from, from experience of a, a couple of friends that I have who were, were Protestant uh, converts and I'll, I'll more say, this isn't necessarily my advice, but what, uh, they've told me of their experience, which I, think, which I think is relevant. Number one is you don't know near as much as you think you know. Uh, and number two is just because it was written by an Orthodox person 300, 400, 1,000 years ago doesn't mean you should be reading it right now. Like, find guidance. Get a, find a spiritual father. And if you want to be reading and learning about the church, you know, allow somebody to guide you through that journey because I, I do find something that a lot of um, very zealous uh, catechumens, you know, feel they have to do is, is take a, a scholastic approach to the faith and learn every single practice and every single thing. And they'll read every little thing that was written. And that's great. Except all those people contradict each other for at various times. And if you don't understand how to read them, you're not going to get anywhere with it. And, and I say this to somebody who's done some of this and has thoroughly confused myself um, in the process. And, you know, I had to talk to a handful of people to sort all that stuff out because I'm sitting there and like, well, you know, clearly they can't, it can't be that one of them's right and the rest of them are wrong. Like they must just all be wrong and nobody knows what they're talking about. Well, that's not going to get you anywhere. So, yeah, that, like I said, that one, I was definitely, I've had a few people tell me this and so I'm just going to pass that one on. Yeah, yeah, super helpful advice. And I think that it gets back to your former point that orthodoxy is a living faith and it's a practical faith that's embodied. And so if people are interested in orthodoxy, it's wonderful to like watch a video like this or others on the internet, but the end goal should be to be a regular participant in a community. And that includes uh, what you're reading. Like it's awesome yeah. to read, but it's good to know what the actual consensus of the church is and the person generally that's going to represent that is the local parish priest, who's uh, generally good guide with these sorts of things. And I think the majority of priests that I've met are wonderful people that are more than happy to sit down and have a coffee with someone and discuss what books they're reading and what their interests might be, even if, if someone's not very um, far down the road in Orthodoxy, if they're like an inquirer or, or whatever it happens to be. I think that most Orthodox priests are really open to that kind of engagement. 
and, and they've most of them have had unless they're a, a younger priest most of them have experienced this many many times before they have helped people in every step uh every step of the way of every single part of their faith wherever they are um you know my priest was the spiritual father to a harem monk hermit that lived you know in the woods and he was he's just uh, just a priest so it's it's not even necessarily about you know uh your um rank's not the right word there but uh huh get late at night i know it's it's not too late yeah. it's 11 <laughs> o'clock for me yeah you're, you're three hours ahead of me yeah, yeah actually fresh yeah yeah that's right but and then so that's just it i mean the, you know most priests have dealt with converts of of all stripes and and you know cradle orthodox and faithful of of every every single uh, road imaginable and so you're you're very likely you're almost certainly not the first person to come with these questions, these concerns, or these these shortcomings. Um, and so again, that's that's that is really why it's important to, um, yeah, to to find a church and talk to a priest. And and on that too, don't you know, don't jump around to too many, um, because you, you'll fall into that, uh, you know, eventually you'll find. I mean, sometimes you're you're going to find a church that doesn't work with you for for language reasons or for i mean you could even be for musical reasons so many different musical traditions in the orthodox church and some of them like some people just don't like the the, the byzantine sound some people do um you know the carpatho russian church is a much more four-part harmony uh you know mu musical church and and some you know people who've grown up uh uh you know greek aren't overly fond of that and and you know that's fine but don't don't keep going, bumping around until you find a priest who tells you what you like <laughs> i'm always slightly wary of that so. yeah yeah absolutely well that's a wonderful place to conclude for today constantine so i want to thank you for your time it's been wonderful speaking with you yeah, thanks so much max Hey guys, thanks for checking out that episode of the Orthodox Christian Podcast. If you want to check out Constantine's work, you can Google Theosis Woodwork and there is an Etsy shop. I will also put the link to that in the video description below. If you have a question about Orthodox Christianity, there is a second link in the video description to a Google form where you can submit your question. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to pass it on to one friend or family member, or if you haven't yet, please subscribe. And in the meantime, I hope that you have a peaceful week. Take care.